The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Hello, welcome to History Island, celebrating the rich history of Long Island. Freedom. It's a concept that many people have been struggling to find all through history. Freedom is an important thing. It's what our country is all based on. Anyway, you were just listening to an old um, Negro spiritual song um, that was sang by Country Joe McDonald in 1970 in a concert. That song was written in the 1800s, and it was part of the important group of um, gospel. They called them... um, gospel Negro spiritual songs. And what they were was songs that the slaves down south had made up. And the slaves really weren't allowed to have their own entertainment, but they found ways to have little get-togethers and they would sing songs of hope and celebration and different ones. You've heard some of them in your life, but Old Freedom is one of the big ones, one of the big three, basically. Of course, We Shall Overcome. And um, that's another one. And anyway, um, I just wanted to play that because tonight, um, in celebration of uh, Long Island uh, Local Black History Month, we're going to um, talk about some um, really good citizens of Long Island who um, just might happen to be African American. Um, the amazing thing is with all the struggles that they went through, the um, the slave population in this country, they had a lot of things to overcome, and it was a very tough time. And slavery was obviously not a right thing. It wasn't good that it happened. But um, we've come through it as a country. as a lot of struggle. And, of course, slavery doesn't exist here now. But slavery is, a, unfortunately, a worldwide phenomenon that's going on right now all over the world. There are people being killed, people being enslaved. It's a really unstable world. 
world we're living in. But we're going to talk about Long Island tonight, and we're going to talk about some people who did really good work here. So anyway, my first guest tonight is going to be a great artist, Michael A. Butler. He's a narrative artist, and he lives out in Sag Harbor, and um, he does some great work, and he knows some really good history. So anyway, uh, let's not waste any time. Let's bring him right on. Hey, Michael, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Dale. Thank you very much. I, I feel as though we're becoming old friends now, even though I think it's only been about five days since we first met. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, thanks, and I'm thrilled to have you on. And I have to say thank you for putting my middle initial A in between my first and last names because there are other Michael Butlers floating around, and I have been confused with them from time to time, so I'm glad you picked up on them because not everyone does. But, um, yeah, so I found it very interesting that you were mentioning um, enslavement in the South, and part of what I will touch on this evening is also uh, some of the enslavement that was here in the North, New York, Long Island in particular, I don't know that many people actually know that New York was a slave state, as was almost much of New England, and there are actually projects now underway basically through Sylvester Manor with Donna Marie Barnes and David Rattray, the publisher of the East Hampton Star, to hopefully uncover as many names of people who were enslaved here. And as I was told, almost any village that you can walk down, any named street with a surname, say here in Sag Harbor, might be Fordham or Howard, they were basically enslavers. They held people in bondage here as well. Now, of course, the enslavement in New York was not the same as in the South with the large plantations, because that was very much an agricultural economy, although there were people who were enslaved who worked in factories and mills and that type of thing as well. So New York slavery was generally, no one typically had more than maybe 14 enslaved people. And the enslaved people might live in the house or in the barn. And what we're finding, though, is that the historical documentary record is very sketchy. So what had happened is David uh, Rattray had seen, I think he had come upon a gravestone somewhere, of one of the enslaved people, and that started him on a, on a whole quest to try and find who these people were, not just who they were, what their life skills were, what they, who they might have been employed by, not employed, but enslaved by, also if they had families, careers, trying to round up the whole picture of these people. Now, Sylvester Manor on Shelter Island was one of the earliest uh, slave plantations in New York, And I don't know if you're aware, but uh, it was all of Shelter Island was Sylvester Manor at one point, however many acres that encompasses. So Sylvester's came up from Barbados with a number of enslaved people and formed a plantation there. And their goal was to be a provisioning plantation for the people at their home plantation in Barbados. Now, Barbados had a different type of economy, a lot of sugar, rum sugarcane, etc., and so the plantation here basically grew the corn, the potatoes, the wheat, etc. Now, I'm bringing all of that up because in the growth of the African-American population of Sag Harbor, it seems though a lot of people who have been formerly enslaved 
left Shelter Island and came to Sag Harbor sometime after the, or around the time period of the end of slavery in New York. Now, the slave period in New York ended due to what was called the Gradual Emancipation Act, which took place in 1799. At this point, of course, slavery was becoming very unpopular. Um, it eventually came about that slave people could no longer be captured from Africa, and so slavery was slowly, slowly dying out in the North. So the provision in New York was that any male or female children born to enslaved women, the men would be freed at the age of 28, the women at the age of 25. So we look upon slavery in New York as having ended in basically 1827, although you will still find some records of people who might have been so-called indentured, etc. And again, many people who have been enslaved by their former owners still stayed on the, the ground. They, they were... There was something that was called, if you were going to um, free an enslaved person, they had to be able to be self-sufficient economically for themselves. Otherwise, they would be known what was called abandoned to the poor. In other words, they would end up in a poor house. So, say, during this Gradual Emancipation Act, someone was going to free their, their, the members of their uh, African household... They would have to say, yes, this person is younger than 50 years of age. They can thus, uh, they're able to, they're a seamstress, or they're a sailor, or they're a farmer, and they're able to provide for themselves and their family. So, again, that's just a brief history on slavery in New York State. And, of course, a lot of the other New England states followed suit, I believe. Rhode Island may have been the last one to finally uh, set in place uh, the freedom for people of color. Now, that brings us to Sag Harbor, and I, my family has been summering here since about 1922. Hey, um, Michael, um, you know what? We're coming up on our first break, so that's a perfect okay. place to take a break. So uh, we're going to go to a break. Hang on, and when we come back, we'll talk about that, okay? Okay, okay, Dan. Okay, so uh, hi, everybody. You are listening to History Allen on 103.9 Ally News Radio. I'm Dale Spencer, your history guy. Come on back. Michael has some amazing stories to tell us. Um, thank you all for tuning in tonight. Hi, my name is Mike Cueva. And I'm Lisa Steffens, and we work at BLD's Restaurant on Hawkins Avenue in Ronkonkoma. And we would love for everybody to come on down and visit us and check out our food items and our friendly atmosphere. We decorate all the time year-round. And like I said, we are family-owned. I'm there 20 years. Mike next to me is there about 15. And we would love everybody to come in and join us. Yeah, you have to try our pancakes, our waffles, our French toast, even our Ribs are good. Burgers are great as well. And don't forget, our police officers, our veterans, our fire department, we give discounts for veterans, police officers, seven days a week. So come on down and visit us. Our business hours are 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. And we're known for your home away from home. Hello, 
everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dale Spencer, your history guy. And of course, you are listening to History Island on 103.9 FM LA News Radio. So we've got a great guest tonight, Michael A. Butler. He's a narrative artist from Sag Harbor. And we've, of course, been talking about, um, well, the slavery on Long Island. And now, um, Michael, we're starting to catch up to now Sag Harbor, right? Yes, we are. So um, many people, I'm sure, since this, this is Long Island, know that Sag Harbor was one of the main whaling ports in the country. Newport and New Bedford were the top two, and then Sag Harbor as well. So what whaling did is it provided economic opportunities for men of color, both Native American, indigenous men, and African American men as well. Now, where did the African American men come from? There's this thought, again, that a lot of them uh, were already here uh, enslaved. And the height of the whaling industry, industry was basically in the 1840s, but of course we have records of Native people and Black people much longer than that. So we just have the feeling some may have been escaped people from the South, or they may have been enslaved in the region, or perhaps not enslaved, not, not everyone was enslaved, some were granted freedom. And so Sack Harbor became fairly well-known well around the globe, not just the country, but around the globe. Now, when black men went to southern seaport towns on the way either to or from the whaling areas, they had to have what was known as a, a um, seaman's certificate, which said that my name is so-and-so, I'm employed for whatever ship, blah, 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 because if they wanted to get off the ship and go into the town, they ran the risk of being re- re-enslaved or enslaved in oh. southern towns, such as Charleston or someplace like that. My God. So, yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, right. it's like, show me your papers type of thing. Exactly right. As bad yes. as it could be. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, we find that towards the end of the period of slavery, Sag Harbor then began to gain a much larger black population. People came, as I said, from the North Fork, from South Old Town, came from uh, Shelter Island. There was also probably a very small population that was here. And almost any town along Long Island had a, might have had a very small nucleus of people of color and, and black people. So the whaling industry is basically what drew black people to Sag Harbor because it provided good opportunities. The, the women who were at home were seamstresses. Uh, some made candy. They did domestic work and that type of thing. But we don't really see the neighborhood of Eastville, uh, which was one of the main first communities in Sag Harbor uh, to have a substantial African-American population, although Eastville was, and it still is known as being integrated. We think of ourselves as having three cultures here, European-Americans, indigenous Native Americans, and African-American people. Originally, the area of Eastville was called Snooksville, after a European family who owned a large number of homes and land and property in the area. But over time, the Snooks family began to experience an economic decline in their fortunes, and so they started to sell off little lots of land here and there. And so people started to snap them up, and so this is when you start to see um, the first vestiges of uh, black home ownership here in Sag Harbor. And this period was probably, we really don't know exactly um, some of the homes seem like they've been here much longer than, say, the 1820s, and trying to date them through 
either looking at the beams or the studs or the nails. It has proven difficult. But anyway, we, we kind of think of the 1830s, 1840s as being when there started to be a population here. And so the people that were here, the black people, generally were churchgoers. But they found that they were often relegated to the rear pews of the church or up into the the choir loft or something. I read somewhere that very often the last four pews in a church might have been set aside for the black population, and they would be, would be marked with the two letters, BM, meaning black members. So, actually, many of the members here were members of the uh, Methodist or Presbyterian churches, but their numbers grew so large that they decided to pull out of those and form their own church here which is um, one of the institutions in the community, which is the St. David AME Zion Church. Now, that was formed by African-American and Native American men in 1840, and it's still going strong. It's actually the only church structure on its original plot of land in Sag Harbor. There were, of course, many other churches, but they started somewhere else and moved, you know, moved across the street around the corner or something like that, which... Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's not that uncommon. <laughs> yes, I, there's a lot of that all over Long Island, actually, that yeah. happened with churches, yeah. Right, right. So, these members uh, formed St. David Amy Zion Church and then acquired land for a cemetery because at that time, the cemetery was also um, in the other cemeteries here where black people and people of color were generally uh, buried in separate plots, parts of a cemetery. So they wanted their own cemetery here, and I'm a member of what's known as the Eastville Community Historical Society, which was formed in 1980, originally as the Friends of St. David Church, because in the early 1980s, some of the members of the society just happened to see that St. David's Church was pretty run down. Over the years, even though it had been very successful in its early years, it lost a lot of its population, Many people, once the whaling industry declined in about the 1850s, 1860s, people no longer no longer had an economic foothold here, so they moved elsewhere, maybe into Brooklyn or somewhere else, into, into Manhattan, further west in Nassau, Suffolk County. And so the church was pretty run down. It was also difficult to get a pastor to stay here. Um, at one time, there was a house for the for the minister to stay in, but... That actually uh, fell into disrepair, so the minister would stay in the homes of many members, but they often traveled from maybe Brooklyn or Queens or somewhere else. So these these members of the Eastville Society formed a group, and they raised funds to rehabilitate the church. And so the church is thought to be a stop on the Underground Railroad, although there's no real substantiation of that. Because things weren't so well documented. That's a, always been a big problem with finding that history. Exactly. The only thing we can point to, well, there are two things. One is that there is a trap door in the cellar, which leads down to the basement. And also, one of the first ministers here, a Reverend uh, J.P. Thompson, is reputed to have been an abolitionist who met with Frederick Douglass, but... I'm a little confused because there are two J.P. Thompsons. One is Joseph and one is John, and I think there might be some confusion there. But there are also several homes in the area which additionally have trapdoors in their basements or somewhere else. 
a home two doors away from me also has a little... It's not in the basement. It's upstairs more so in the attic where there are hidden partitions and, and walls and cubbies and things like that. And there's a street here called Liberty Street on which a lot of these uh, trap doors are found, which leads straight down to the harbor. So I'm thinking that people who may have been escaping slavery, made their way to Stag Harbor, maybe on ships or through the Underground Railroad, and then uh, made their way down Liberty Street, which leads straight to the harbor, well, not the harbor, but the bay, and then made their way up north to Canada or maybe further into New England or something like that. I didn't thank God they had a network to help them, you know, to do yeah. that. And a very interesting mm-hmm. that the street is called Liberty Street. Perfect name for it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, I have not been able to find, no one seems to know how the street got its name. Mm. Now, of course, a lot of the streets, some of them changed names over time, but Liberty Street always seems to have been Liberty Street. And this section of Eastville was considered to be east of Sag Harbor Village, and it really was not considered that prime an area. In fact, much of Sag Harbor was mostly swamp and hills and um, sandy soil, so it was not good for farming or anything. So Sag Harbor got its name. It was the harbor for Sagaponic, which is one of the nearest villages on the ocean. And farmers in Sagaponic, which have a much better soil, would ship their goods to Sag Harbor. So that's how Sag Harbor became a a well-known seaport. And that brought in all sorts of types of people as well. They say you could see people from the Fiji Islands or Hawaii or, of course, Africans and Europeans and the Far East, uh, Asia, all walking down up, up and down the streets of Sag Harbor. So always sort of had a somewhat more cosmopolitan feeling than maybe other parts of Long Island. That's right, because a lot of other parts of Long Island weren't like that at all. Yes, exactly. The more insular, um, more, more to themselves. So, a long way around to the development of um, the African-American summering community here in, in Sag Harbor. Hey, guess what? We're coming up on a break again, so that's a perfect opportunity to stop, and uh, we'll take a break and pay the bills, and I'll, uh, we'll come right back, and we'll talk about All that. Right. Okay, everybody, History Island, 103.9 FM, LI News Radio, and I am Dale Spencer, your host, and we are talking with Michael A. Butler, an amazing conversation, and so come on back. Welcome back. Hope you're enjoying the show tonight. LI News Radio, 103.9 FM. And I'm Dale Spencer, your host of History Island on every Tuesday night. So anyway, um, as you're uh, going along, maybe you're getting ready to go out and um, travel around a little and you want to have a good, nice, easy breakfast on your way. Well, my favorite place to go is the Handy Pantry, 279 Smithtown Boulevard in Wisconsin, New York. You can reach them at 631-467-4577. 
Scotty and his crew over there will take good care of you. They've got great breakfast items over there. A little pancake bar, really good egg sandwich, a classic New York egg sandwich. Great beverage selection. They've got a whole little supermarket in that store. Um, Really, really good. Everything is good quality. Fresh rolls every day. Uh, great cold cut specials, better than you'll find at most places. So if you have any breakfast, lunch, or pick up that quick item to get back home, they're easy to get in and out. Handy Pantry, 279 Smithtown Boulevard in Wisconsin. And of course, as you're traveling around and you need to go, say, to the airport or you want to go to a game or you want to do a tailgate party or a winery trip this summer or a wedding, well, call my friends at Long Island Elite Limo in St. James. They're really the best, most reliable limo company on Long Island. Um, A great staff over there. The drivers are all really nice and polite. The cars are top-notch condition. They have all kinds of cars for whatever trip you might want to do. So go over there. Talk to Charlie or talk to Matt or talk to Chris or talk to Reggie. And they will book you for a great call. We'll take good care of you. They're the best limo company around. Now, before we go any farther, um, I have one of the best producers in the business, and I want to thank him like I usually do, and that's John Gifford. Hey, John. And I also have a great, great research director, and that is Janet Rishpita. Thanks a lot, Janny. So anyway, that's my people. So anyway, let's get back to this amazing conversation with Michael A. Butler. Hey, so Michael, we were talking about all those things, uh, that Sag Harbor, the early days, and now we're kind of getting a little more into it. So uh, what do you got to say? Yes, we're inching up closer and closer to the present day. I think we're around 1890 now. Yes. So um, <laughs> that's one of the earliest uh, records that we can find when African-American people started summering here. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there started to be people who were moving into the city for economic opportunities, and but they would come back and visit family members who were here and bring friends from the city. And so slowly the area began to become more well-known as a place for people of color, black people, to feel comfortable, have a place to go where they could fish, they could clam, they could boat, swim, all the things that anybody else would look for in a recreational area. So slowly from the 1890s to the 1920s, you began to find more and more people forming a very small nucleus of people that were summering here. Now, some of the people at that time period who were here was um, a lady by the name of Daisy Tapley, now, she was an African-American singer. She traveled to Europe and toured with many of the well-known black groups at the time. And she's supposed to have been one of the first, actually the first uh, female recording artist to have a record produced as commercially as a duet. Now, I think there's someone who may be... Um, as a single, is the first African-American lady, so maybe there's a little competition there. But she was there... Um, and it seemed as though there was a nucleus of musical people here. There was a professor, James Van Houten, who lived here in Sag Harbor, who was a music professor. A great-great-uncle of mine, Walter Craig, was here, who was also a band leader, a musician, a well-known violinist who also toured Europe. But it wasn't until the 1930s that, and of course, more and more people, word of mouth, continued to grow from the 1930s. Uh, black people started to really buy property here in Sag Harbor, in Eastville specifically. And again, Eastville is 
was an integrated area, but it was, you know, most welcoming where people felt most welcome here. And that leads us into the development of the, actually the developments, the growth of the uh, developments. Now, some people may have heard of what's known as SAN, which is called the Sac Harbor Hills, Azure Rest, Nineveh Beach, and subdivisions. And the subdivisions are also um, Hillcrest Terrace and Chatfields Hill. Now, those are the main areas where black people started to build their homes. They came from all over. Philadelphia, Washington, Michigan, mainly Brooklyn and Harlem, of course. And my family, my mother's family, was instrumental in that development because when my great-uncle came here, he bought up a number of different small bungalows. Some of them he actually acquired from the Coast Guard, and he would rent them out to people who were building their homes. So this would have been through the 40s and 50s because Azure, the first development that opened up was 1949. But again, so some people think of that as sort of being the the beginning of the uh, black population summary in Sac Harbor. But as I said, it actually goes back another 50 or 60 years at least. So, yeah, so now there is a move right now to try and preserve these neighborhoods because the original homes that were built there were were small bungalows, small ranch homes, Cape Cod, etc. But of course... Like much of Long Island, it's been discovered, much of the East End in particular, and the developers are buying up the properties and knocking the small homes down and building the huge McMansions, and so it's not um, affordable to many people anymore. But I just wanted to run through some of the people that summered here, summered here or are still here. Um, Harry Belafonte was here at one time, Ossie Davis, Lena Horn. Colin Powell summered here. Um, Ron Brown, who is uh, Bill Clinton's Secretary of Commerce. And, uh, of course, we know Colson Whitehead, who's written several books. The one people may be familiar with mostly, well, there are a couple, several, but there's The Underground, The Underground Railroad. The book called Sag Harbor, which is also an autobiographical type of a book. Uh, very semi-autobiographical, I'll say. And several other authors, I mean, Walter Mosley summered here. He was uh, listed by uh, President Clinton as his favorite author. Don Lemon's written a book, and, and so many more I could go into. Him. Some of them would not necessarily be uh, known to the general public, but they were well-known in their own um, fields. Well, just some of those names you mentioned are who's who of amazing creative people that wound up out here on Long Island. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, again, they were, some of them had homes, some of them were invited out to stay for long periods of time where they rented, and they chose Sag Harbor as a place in which to create. You know, of course, many artists come out to the East End just for the light itself. When I came out, I was not necessarily... I have to say, I was not impressed with the light. That wasn't was not what I was looking for. I was just looking for a peace and quiet, and to be closer to family. So when I moved here full time in the late '80s, um, I you know I decided to stay. I was going back and forth to Brooklyn for extended periods of time. I would stay out here, and I said one day, I said, "Why am I going back?" So I just decided to stay here, and I have to say, Psycharb has been very good to me in terms of my own creative abilities. So um, you may, I don't know if you were at Long Island Museum last year, 
when we uh, curated, Joshua Ruff and I curated Creative Haven, Black Artists of Sag Harbor, and we had a dozen artists who were in the show. It was up from February 17th to August 27th, and it was a dozen artists uh, of, from Sag Harbor who were um, different styles, different themes, different media that they all use, but the main thing we had in common was Sag Harbor. So over the years, probably in the late 70s, uh, we started to form small different groups. One was called the Eastville Artists Association. Another one was called the Onyx Group, in which we would feature our artwork. But generally, the artists started coming here, along with the growth of their developments in the 1940s and 1950s. Some would conduct small workshops for people in the area just to have something else to do, something more creative during the summer months. And many people would teach us, even though they were artists, very often um, they have to have something else to supplement their income because unless one becomes very, very well-known or has a uh, gallery that's uh, fostering their work. So the, you would find maybe someone worked in the post office, someone might have been a social worker or a teacher or had some other, um, <laughs> I don't know which one I would call the side hustle going on. But <laughs> so you had to do something to make a living, the poor starving yeah. artist syndrome. <laughs> exactly. You get away from that syndrome. Right, right. Yes. Yeah, so, um, but the important thing was always to create, to you know, always have that focus in mind. And as, as creatives, though, of course, we have our ups and downs or moments of doubt when we wonder how uh, the public will receive something. But generally, I paint for myself. I, I, know I, um, I have to be satisfied with it. And, and they're like my um, children, in a, in a sense, because I, when I sell a painting, I have to make sure it goes to a, a good home, in a sense. Of course. That's always an important part of it. Um, I've seen yeah. a little of your work. Um, pretty amazing. And um, I was very impressed with uh, the uh, thing at the Long Island Museum that you guys opened the other night. And um, you were doing some of the painting partnership of, um, of Reynolds and uh, Joan Ruffin, right? Yes. Reynolds and Joan Ruffins were uh, an amazing couple. Um, and the story is, of course, that uh, they both attended the New York City High School of Music and Art, which is where I think they must have met, and then went on to attend Cooper Union in Manhattan. However, with Joan, uh, well, Reynolds and Joan did marry. She became pregnant while she was attending Cooper Union, but she was told that she would have to drop out and give her space to a man <laughs> because she was pregnant. And it took, this was in the early 50s, and it took 25 years for Cooper Union to finally try to rectify that, uh, I don't know, gross injustice, I would say. You know, it's absurd. And they did award her a certificate of completion. But I was saying that, you know, nonetheless, she missed that whole interactive, that whole creative atmosphere. And who knows where else she might have gone with her career because she was very reticent. Very wise, not necessarily shy, but she sort of held back and more so promoted her husband's art career. And as I said, Joan was more so the gatekeeper. She monitored phone calls and visitors to the home so that Reynolds would not be interrupted in his artwork. And he was, Reynolds was actually one of the original founders of Pushpin Studio in Manhattan, which he formed with three other buddies from Cooper Union. Milton Glazer was one, and I forget the other names, of course, but I think Milton Glazer went on to co-found New York Magazine. 
So they became fairly well-known, and their goal was to sort of upset the typical advertising market at the time, get away from those, I guess you've seen the 1950s types of uh, cigarette ads or something like that, where they kind of stayed looking, but they wanted to do something very more avant-garde, something that would sort of shake people up, maybe go a little more abstract. So this is what they did for a number of years. So this is what, so when Reynolds retired, he then went into his own work, which still to me has somewhat of a graphic or commercial look to it. But Joan's work, from her lived experience as a homemaker, her paintings tend to be, to be more domestic in theme. She would do um, the children. She did their home, their home in Queens. I don't think she ever did one of their home in Sag Harbor, except for interior scenes, something with a chair and a table or something like that. Very well done. But again, she was very shy, and I sort of, I had a gallery in Sag Harbor in 1998, and I think I was actually one of the first people to give her her own real exhibit at my gallery. It was a group show, but, you know, it took a little doing for her to uh, be coaxed to do it, but she did, and Reynolds was not in the show, which, um, you know, because I featured her, and um, so after that, you know, she continued to do her scenes, but I don't know, I was just felt that somehow she had been shortchanged in life, but she was a great homemaker, a great mother, so, you know, that's a career in, it, in and of itself, so... Well, unfortunately, another victim of backwards thinking by people who couldn't realize <laughs> that uh, that everybody yeah. is equal and has the same talents to do things, you know. Yeah, yeah. When I was in college, there was the term of self-actualization, and that always stuck with me, that people have to basically come into their own, use their own talents and creative bent and whatever else they have that's God-given and just really... Do something with it. You know, what else are we here to do except to create? That's, as someone said to me, that's how we know we're, you know, we know we're alive, that we leave something behind. Of course. our legacy yeah. creative people. Yeah, we're all God's beautiful creatures, and we all have some creative ability to leave something wonderful behind us. Yes. So now, as we get toward the end of the show, now I know people can go over there to the Long Island Museum in Stony Brook and they can see that exhibit right now, right? About yeah. them. I saw it and really enjoyed it the other night. Um, now, how about you guys at East? Um, is there any galleries or anything suggest in Sag Harbor that people could come out and see some of your work? Yes. Yeah, so right now, I, I have uh, a small exhibit that I co-curated called Afrofuturism. It's in the lobby of Bay Street Theater, which is right on the corner of Bay Street and Main Street. Probably people may know that since it's a theater venue, but they were generous enough to lend us and us as the Eastville Community Historic Society that space. We have four artists exhibiting there. And then we have, I have some works at Keys Gallery, which is just, it's actually part of the American Hotel. It's off to the side. And um, Julie Keyes is the gallerist, and she has she's representing me, so there will always be some of my works in there as well. So those are two places. And then there's several other galleries uh, in town. Um, Sarah Nightingale, Grinning Gallery, Black's, no, not Black's one. And I forget because there's another new gallery, and I have not caught up with them. But yes, um, and now's a good time to come before the summer rush. 
I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, I got you on that, right? Um, listen, yeah. um, uh, me and my wife are going to be out to visit you soon and see some of that work. Um, oh, perfect! It has been uh, a, a great friendship we formed the other night, and um, we're going to have to have you back on because we've only really scratched the surface on some of these things. And um, yes, we have. Yeah, so we'll be out to see you soon. Um, thanks for appearing on the show tonight, and um, I'll get in touch with you, and we'll have you back on to explore a little more deeply into some of this, okay? Thank you, Dale, and hello to all of your listeners. Oh, thank you so much, and you have a good night, okay? We'll see you soon. You too. Bye now. So anyway, folks, that's Michael A. Butler. He's a great guy, great artist, and we're going to have him back on, and we'll tell you more about what he um, has to show soon. He's got a lot of great artwork. I've seen a little of it. So anyway, um, this has been an interesting show. A lot of it is about people who needed their freedom to really blossom. Freedom, one of the most valuable things that there is. I think a lot of Americans are kind of taking it for granted a little bit that we have all this freedom. We live in a very crazy world right now where there's people being killed all over the world in different wars in different countries, and it's not a good thing. And there's people who are slaves in other countries, and slavery is never a good thing. Um, remember, you all have the power to change the world around you. One person can change the world. You can make, do a good thing for other people, and you can affect other people to do things. And many, there's been many times where one person has changed the world. So please, everybody, keep that in mind, that freedom is not free. It's something we have to keep working for and working for. So anyway, thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. Um, I'm going to go out with a song about freedom. Thanks for coming, everybody. LA News Radio, Dale Spencer. You're listening to History Island on 103.9. It's wooden music again, so you got to be cool. Otherwise, you won't hear
swallow you. Lay your